Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale, and tonight we're finally talking about Andreth. Andreth, that's and, right. Yes, and talking talking about Andreth with me as always, as you can hear, is the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. Unfortunately, we will not be joined tonight by the Tolkien Maven Trish Lambert, who is taking the taking a vacation this much deserved vacation this that's week. That's right. And I imagine, and it's unfortunate timing because I I know she wanted to talk about Andreth. Yes, so. yes, it's true. She'll be sorry to miss Andreth, we, but I guess we'll have we'll, there'll be more to, uh, chances to weigh in on this later yeah, on. Yeah, that's true. We could just drag out the topic so that we don't actually get <laughs> yeah. to Andreth. So. Exactly. <laughs> so if we're sufficiently inconclusive during this session, we'll be okay. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. How are you doing, Corey? Good, good. I'm good. We're uh, uh, at, in a extremely busy season here at Signum. In fact, I'm taking a, a hiatus from my broadcast for the next couple of weeks. We'll, we'll need to move one of the, the next uh, session, I think, actually, uh, from, what is it, two weeks from today. So instead of the 16th, we'll have to probably shift it up to the 23rd. But anyway... Well, we're it's so yeah, it's a crazy time. Big deadline coming up, and uh, working on lots of things, uh, exciting programs happening and stuff. But that reminds me to like talk about two things that are happening soon. Here, one is Mythmoot. Mythmoot Seven is coming up August sixth through ninth. Um, it's you know with all of the recent outbreaks and some states shutting back down and everything, we're. <laughs> We've been playing this by ear for a long time as to what we're going to do in Mythmoot. We're really committed to the idea of having our moots. We love our moots and we want to give people the opportunity to get together. We're not sure. You know, we've never been sure to what extent it's going to be able to happen. But one way or another, it is happening. We are going to do Mythmoot. There's a chance we might end up having to switch to a totally virtual moot this year. In any case, however, whether we do a totally virtual moot or whether we still get together, we're still going to have lots of opportunity for people, other people to join uh, virtually. Um, uh, It is going to be at the very least a hybrid moot, and that's always the case uh, for us at MythMoot. Uh, so definitely wanted to, uh, uh, to make sure to encourage people, uh, to look into Mootcast because one way or another Mootcast, uh, is, uh, uh, is going to be awesome. So, um, uh, definitely, definitely recommend that. And we'll have more new soon. As I say, event planning in this era is uh very challenging but um but i've been stubborn about it and the reason i've been stubborn about it is that you know there are a lot of people who are like oh let's just do our meeting virtually this year well but the whole point of our meetings is we do everything else virtually <laughs> it's the only non-virtual thing we do ever uh and so i'm uh, i'm uh, very reluctant uh to lose that but um um but anyway Anyway, um, we uh, we're we're gonna see we're gonna see what we can do um, one way or another. As I say, though, Mootcast is gonna be great. There will be plenty of virtual opportunities uh, to be participating this year. So, uh, I just strongly recommend that to folks. Uh, Signum Path. We are uh, coming up on the beginning of our second month of Signum Path. Our July classes are starting this coming Monday, actually, on the sixth of July, uh, and we are still running 
our summer startup special for folks who sign up for a July uh, uh, path course. Uh, you get a, a free August course. We'll let you continue uh, your program uh, for free uh, in August for those who sign up in July. So there's still time for that through this weekend uh, to sign up and uh, uh, start in July next week. So I uh, encourage people uh, to take advantage of that. Um, all right. Uh, let us get down to business now. And our business tonight is, uh, <clears throat> there it is, Andreth, as Dave was saying. Um, so what do we have to say about Andreth? Um, I am, I am really interested in the Andreth character. I am excited about having Andreth. I think that Andreth is going to be a very unusual film film character in many ways. I really love the idea of having her be the focal point, uh, of our story this season. Um, mostly because I, one of the things that I really like about it it's not just the fact that, I mean, I, it is not merely, you know, wanting to go out of my way to, you know, have a female character, uh, especially a female human character, uh, be so important in our storytelling. Um, first of all, I think that Andreth is a really fascinating character as Tolkien invented her, even though, of course, she's not in the published Silmarillion because she wasn't invented until late in the game. It was, you know, up in the, at the earliest, uh, you know, late fifties, early sixties when Andreth was created, um, you know, when he came to, you know, that part. And by then he was in the midst of the Silmarillion reconsiderations that never got finished enough to make it into print. So, you know, when Christopher went to publish the Silmarillion, he he drew primarily on a lot of the earlier materials because that that was the stuff that was done basically you know presenting uh presented with the choice of either um either writing a whole bunch of stuff himself to finish out what you know Tolkien had been thinking in his later years or using the material that Tolkien had written in his earlier years despite the fact that many of his later thoughts had started to go in different directions uh you know Tolkien Christopher chose the latter um, and thus, Andreth doesn't make the published Silmarillion. But she's a really cool and a really interesting character and a really deep character um, that um, uh, uh, that I really uh, that I really uh, 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 think is uh, is fascinating. Um, and yes, I can in fact share my screen for those of you who are on go to webinar. There we go. Um, so, um, but the, the other the other reason that I. Uh, why I'm sort of excited about her is that it's easy to think about the Silmarillion, you know, this Silmarillion stuff to get sort of focused on, you know, like mighty heroic deeds of arms and things like that. Right. And there are lots of really fun highlight moments like that, you know, uh, you know, battles, good and bad, mostly bad, um, you know, heroic achievements by certain people and stuff like that. And characters who are, uh, you know, who are, who are really awesome in various ways, like Beleg with his archery and all kinds of things. Right. But to have a character like Andreth, um, who's important because she is for, for there are two things that make Andreth important as a character within what Tolkien wrote of her, right? One is for her wisdom. That is her primary role. She is a wise woman of the Adine. 
um, and just someone who is not a hero, like physically speaking, right? Somebody who is not a warrior, uh, you know, a warrior queen. Holith is cool, but uh, somebody who is just uh, wise and smart and a good leader um, be the focal point. And in fact, be, uh, I would want to see her uh, be... um, uh, you know, respected uh, and listened to by those who are uh, the, you know, military leaders and stuff. Um, uh, so just having someone in that kind of position, someone who is not a warrior king, but who is, uh, who is, who is a wise woman is really interesting. And then when you add in the romance angle, you know, in the story of Andreth and Ignor, this is one of those unique stories. It's more rare uh, because it's the only example of its kind. We don't ever again see uh, a reciprocated but tragic, like a requited but unconsummated tragic relationship between a human woman and an elf man. Like that just, that doesn't happen. Um, Baron and Luthien that happens. It happens a couple times, right? We get three examples, at least, uh, of human elf romances when the dynamics work the other way. Um, uh, and this, I think, is really, really, uh, really, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that there's... Uh, and, and it also... The challenge, and which I think is a really interesting challenge uh, of season five that this kind of casts over all of season five um, is that this is not going to be a season which is primarily dominated by actions, right? Which of course we already knew because this was going to be the season of the long piece, right? You know, with this, the season which ends at the end of the long piece. Um, So, you know, we were kind of joking about how last season, not all that much happened. Um, There were relatively few events. But I mean, hey, the building of cities and the establishment of kingdoms, which seemed challenging enough to make the, you know, the the sort of dramatic events of 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 a TV season. Well, goodness, that was... That was very dynamic, in a sense, compared to what we have this season, right? Where uh, the season in which everybody kind of buckles down and waits and doesn't do very much until finally the battle at the end of the season. Um, and I get, I, to me, this is a really, really interesting challenge. And that's why, that's why I'm excited and continue to be more excited by our choice, by our choice of themes, by this, this, our, our choice of, of change as the theme, as the primary action of this entire season, the primary drama of this season is everybody adapting to like Middle Earth and what it means, right? The arrival of the men and trying to figure out what are men and elves like and how can the two of them interact and how can't the two of them interact and, you know, how, what do they have in common and how are they different and how do they look at the world in different ways and what can we as viewers like learn from both of those perspectives and, you know, how can, how can, you know, the, the different kinds of interest that we can, um, you know, establish in, you know, in both of those. I, I think that's a really, really interesting challenge to me. Um, uh, rather than, you know, much more interesting in its way than a season in which we're just kind of stringing along one one exciting event after another. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, um, we will. Uh, um, 
I'm so this is why I'm, I've been looking forward to talking about Andreth. Now, Stephen was just asking, what about Andreth attracts her uh, uh, to Ignor? You mean? Hang on, Stephen. I'm trying to make sure you're understanding. Like, you're, are you asking why Ignor is attracted to her, or why she's attracted to Ignor? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, either one. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about both. Actually, though, hang on a second. I want to move back because I'm thinking that's not where we're starting with Andreth. Um, uh, Andreth is uh, is going to be we're going to establish Andreth as a character and as an important character on her own long before she becomes a romantic lead. And that, of course, is one of the things that we need to be careful to avoid. Right. Is that we want to make sure that the romance uh, 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 storyline of Andreth doesn't undermine her as a character, right? We don't want, we don't, we do, we don't want to, you know, uh, do to Andreth what you know Peter Jackson did to poor Evangeline Lilly, right? Um, and you know, convince her that she was going to be this awesome independent character, which then gets wedged into a love triangle. Um, and obviously, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do exactly that, right? Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it, it's, uh, we will be doing a grave disservice to the character of Andreth if we appear to introduce her just for the sake of a romance, right? Uh, to give one of our, uh, you know, masculine elves a love interest, you know, a, 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 an interesting and exotic love interest that doesn't work out. Um, if anybody has that kind of reaction to this, well, okay, I won't say if anybody has that reaction, we failed because people will have weird reactions and we can't control that. But I mean, if, 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 if that's a reasonable response to our season, then we will certainly have failed in our characterization of Andreth. And so to me, the most important element there is what happens with Andreth in the first half of the season. I would like, I would suggest that we restrict her romance with Ignor to the second half of the season. Um, I think she should meet him later on. Um, so, That's what I'm I like thinking. It. Yeah, yeah. You don't want her to just be a love interest. You got to do that. Yeah, she can't just be a love interest. So she's got to. She's got to be first and foremost. Uh, we establish first, like her relationship with Finrod is the foremost. Like the is is like really the foreground. Her relationship with her people and her relationship with with Finrod. Um, so, okay, reviewing some stuff from the from the the slide here because there's some some stuff we should go over here. Um, okay, so we've got a list of key events in Andreth's life. We've got her being the pupil of Adonel, right? So we've got Adonel, who is sort of the wise woman who, who, who comes before her, her, before her. So we will see her first as kind of apprentice wise woman, right? At the beginning. Um, I would say like while Beor is alive, we see that, um, the removal to Ladros. So when the people of Beor move, uh, and go up to Dorthonian, um, uh, that's, that's going to be a major, uh, uh, event in her life. I will tell you in advance, my own argument, my own, what I advocate here is that this move is her initiative. I think this that's Andreth's plan, um, that she comes forward with this. We make her be the one, uh, to see this and to basically teach Finrod you know, and show, I mean, he, he's smart enough to see things, but she's the one who really kind of brings it home and says, look, you know, Finrod, thanks, but this is not working out. You can see that this is not working out. This is what we need. This is the wise thing to do. And he's like, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, you're right, Andreth. It's the wise thing to do. Um, so anyway, um, let's, yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen H says, why would it be her call and not her father? Um, why wouldn't it be her call? Remember, I'm coming at this from the perspective. First, we decide the story. Then I decide who is whose father. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what I would like to see, what I would like to see is, a, is leadership in the house of Baor pass from Baor at his death to Andreth. If that's possible, we'll look at the timeline. We've got some timeline issues uh, to kind of go through, but I would like to see her to be um, to be the leader. Nick wants Bayor to have that realization, and Nick, I think that we can. I think that we can do that. I think that we. I have an idea for how we can kind of manage that. I don't want Bayor to be merely a lapdog. I agree with you, um, but um, but anyway, we'll 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 sort of we'll sort of get there. Um, then, okay, then we've also got the, the romance of Ignor. Then we've got uh, the Athrobeth, that is the, the, this, the actual subject of the Athrobeth, um, that wonderful sort of short story. I, I'm not really sure what to call it uh, as a genre, but anyway, that wonderful thing that Tolkien wrote. Socratic that is, dialogue. <laughs> yeah, Socratic dialogue, uh, published in uh, Morgoth's Ring, um, which our Morgoth's Ring discussion we'll get to someday. Um, uh, so basically their, their discussion, uh, uh, they're, they're, you know, challenging each other's worldviews concerning mortality and the place of elves and men in middle earth, um, that debate and discussion, when do they have that? And this needs to be a little bit further on, uh, in Andreth's life after she's become bitter. Um, uh, she's, she is a, she is a hurt and bitter person when she has that conversation with Finrod, um, and one of the things that's happening over the course of that conversation is not only that the two of them are discussing and two of them are learning from each other um, about what it means to be an elf, what it means to be a human, how both of them wrestle with mortality in their different ways, um, with life and with mortality in their different ways. But of course, in the, it is also in the end, Finrod knows that how she's been hurt. He knows about her and his brother uh, and is uh, very tenderly and very sensitively showing, um, uh, showing real sympathy and kindness towards her. Um, but, um, uh, and then of course there's the Dagor Bragalock and we had suggested, I, I said that I really like, uh, Andreth to, uh, uh, to, to survive and giving her there at the end, um, Andreth and Finrod meeting one more time after, or even like, you know, with the flames of the Dagor Bragalock perhaps still, you know, burning somewhere uh, and, you know, having one last, you know, final exchange. Um, and again, to, to me, that that's the season, right? I, I, the, the, the relationship between Andreth and Finrod is to me the core of the whole season. So thinking about like the Athrobeth, I don't think of the Athrobeth really as an occasion, right? Tolkien wrote it as like a short story, this sort of, you know, contained Socratic dialogue. What I, how I would like to think of, I would like to think about, I would like to stretch that out, essentially. I would like to sort of take some of the, the dynamics of the Athrobeth, some of the issues that arise and the things that they talk about in the Athrobeth, and bring those up at various points so that we can see both of them kind of growing and changing in their own understanding about things until 
sort of the final realizations that they have, where we want to bring things to a close thematically, the kinds of realizations that they have at the end of the Dagor Bragalak. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so yes, Marie, exactly. I would like to show a dynamic relationship between Andreth and Finrod throughout the season, not only because I'd like their relationship to grow, but because both of them growing in their understanding, <laughs> that's the main drama of this season. You know, Andreth and Finrod are going to be our two primary touch points for the Elvish and the human perspectives. And if the central drama of season five is basically bringing the human and the Elvish points of view into contact and conflict in different ways um, and having them come to understand each other and us come to understand what's at stake there and to both of them come to grips with what it means to live in middle earth and what the sort of consequences, uh, you know, of that are. Um, that's like, that's the story. That's the story of season five. I, I mean, what else is there until the Dagar Bragalak, right? So, you know, there are some other side plots that are going to happen in the season, but that's the story. And I think if we don't focus that, well, let me say it in a, let me say it positively instead of negatively. I think that if we focus that story um, repeatedly through these two characters, Finrod, with whom we're already atta- to whom we're already attached, and Andreth, to whom I hope people will become attached over the course of season five, um, then we can and we show them growing in their relationship with each other, them growing together and not, of course, having a romance with each other. Right. You know, having this completely, uh, you know, almost sibling like respect between Andreth and Finrod. Um, uh, And that's one of the things which I think is so beautiful about the Athrobeth. But again, when Andreth is in, um, you know, her sort of later, older, I'm embittered and kind of angry, uh, no, not kind of angry, definitely angry, um, stage of her life, Finrod doesn't just show kindness to her. He doesn't just show sympathy with her. He shows respect for her. He treats her like an equal, um, uh, like an intellectual peer. And that is, that's what I want their relationship to be like, that kind of founded on that kind of mutual respect um, uh, that goes through. And I think that is can, can be a really, really interesting story, but it's an abstract story. I mean, the, 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 in as much as this is the central drama of season five, it's a very internalized and very philosophical drama. And that's, as I say, challenging, but I think will be... Uh, will be kind of interesting to do. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Marie says, Finrod is Lord of Nargothron. She basically has to p- petition him to leave, so their conversations and negotiations begin early. Absolutely, and I would think they would begin earlier than that. I would think that he would he would um, sort of come to appreciate uh, the promise of her intellect from a, an early age, when she's a kid. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Lincoln is asking, where does that respect come from? Does Finrod start out paternalistic and then revise his attitude after an incident? If so, what incident? Yes, Lincoln, and I, my argument is the removal to Ladros, honestly. When she comes to him and says, uh, you know, Finrod, again, Finrod will perceive that not all is well, right? But he's trying to figure out how to fix it. 
because he still believes this is the right thing to do and that this could be done. You know, so he's trying to figure out how can I, how can we, how can this work better? Right. And when she comes to him and says, dude, you're like, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because you don't understand how humans work. Right. We can't live fulfilled lives here. If you want to bless us, right? If you want to help and to nurture us, let us go, right? And uh, and so, Link, in the moment that really clicks it for him, where she he's already ad- like admired her, right? He sees that she's smart, and he sees that um, you know he he respects her judgment and things. But that's the moment where she teaches him something for the first time, where she is the one who shows him how things should go what needs to happen and he respect and his, and that's when his respect for her uh really increases that's why i want andreth to be the one in charge um i don't see the first reason why we have to have a patriarch a continuous patriarchy in the house of baor can somebody explain to me why we would need to have a, a continuous patriarchy in the house of baor i know we need to get to Barry here and baron but that's fine We've got Beor on the one end, and we've got Bari here and Baron on the other, and we can have Andreth in between. Can we have Andreth in between? Why can't we have Andreth in between? Especially um, with the story of the House of Beor that we were developing before, which is them living this peaceful, indeed too peaceful, life in Nargothrond earlier. Um, they're certainly not going to need a warrior prince uh, when they're in Nargothrond. Indeed, a warrior prince is kind of counterindicated, right? Um and so to me, the idea, if Andreth is the one who is clearly in charge, like that she is the one, everyone respects her and, and Finrod respects her and her people respect her. Um, every, and they don't need a leader. Why would they need a leader? Right. I mean, they, they don't have a king. They well, why, why do they need a king? Right. They're there living this sheltered life in Nargothrond. Right. Finrod is sort of their king. Right. Um, but, in, but they all respect Andreth and Andreth is the one who speaks up on their behalf. And she leads them uh, to Ladros. But when she gets there, she knows they need to change their way of life, right? And so Bari here, who is younger than she, right, gets raised up as, you know, he then like becomes the, the leader to sort of take over. And she, and he, she knows they're going to need a different kind of leader now. Like, they're going to need somebody who can lead them in the field. And she sees that whatever relationship we decide Bari here should be to her nephew, brother, whatever, um, she, uh, you know, she basically becomes now his mentor, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and he goes on to become, to become the leader, the leader, um, the leader. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. But Stephen, that's the point. Um, uh, Stephen says, not so much patriarchy, but more like seniority. If Andreth is not a warrior woman, who would be able to lead the House of Bear? No, I mean, she would have, first of all, why seniority? Does it have to be seniority? Again, like, I'd, I'd let them be a peaceful meritocracy. Why can't they be? Um, she doesn't have to be the oldest one to be understood by many to be the wisest, especially if she's the pupil of Adonel and Adonel can die or even like, I don't know what, retire? Do you retire as a wise woman? Anyway, Adonel can be the one to be like, listen to her, right? Adonel can be, you know, with, she would have the endorsement of Adonel and Adonel would say, you know, uh, Andreth should be should be leading. She steps back and Andreth steps forward and Andreth leads the people onto Dorthonian. Absolutely. Um, um, 
But Stephen, the whole point is that they don't need a warrior woman until they get to Dorthonian. Why would they need one? They absolutely don't need one. And that's what I like. That gives us an opportunity uh, to bring Andreth forward as this really important, highly influential, non-warrior figure. Um, it would make absolute sense for the House of Beor to have such a leader during that, for that to be the kind of leader that emerges from among them while they are uh, in this first, you know, uh, under Finrod's protection um, uh, time uh, of their of their existence. Um, so okay, let's uh, let me. So there are a few things that we want to look at here. Well, we'll get back to the we'll get back to the romance. Um, okay, here, hang on. Okay. Um, removal to Ladros. How and when does this happen? What is Andreth's viewpoint? Okay. Um, Nick, I wanted to pick up on some of the thinking about the removal and how this uh, how this discussion goes. Nick, I want to pick up on some of the points that you had made. I'd mentioned them last time that I, I was really interested, Nick, in your uh, in your arguments there. Basically, Nick was saying that um, the humans are going to be taken in. And they're going to be treated with respect, right? They're going to be kind of integrated into the society, kind of like the Valar brought the Eldar to Valinor and integrated them, right? They, they, they weren't necessarily, they weren't living in Valmar itself. They were living in their own separate cities. Um, but they, you know, they were part of Valinorian culture, right? You know, they were all, you know, we see them, you know, feasting together, which only disaster happens, you know, on a couple of occasions. Um, It's, um, you know, it's all good. So, but basically this is Finrod's vision, right? I'll bring them into Nargothrond. They will become a part of the people of Nargothrond. You know, this is going to be awesome. The first child, the elder children and the younger children living together. Finrod is going to have these glorious ideas about how this is going to fulfill, like, you know, this is, this is going to be the fulfillment of, like, the vision of Iluvatar for his children in Middle-earth, right? Um, no, uh, no, you know, the, the two kindreds would have been sundered, but no, this... Finrod can even be saying things like, you know what, like, the, the Doom of Mandos will be good to have been, right? Like, it, you know, our exile and our being here in Middle-earth was... There were some, you know, really questionable things uh, along the way and everything, but you know what? Here we can see, once again, how no choice, the choices that we we make, howsoever disastrous, uh, can work against, you know, the will of Iluvatar. His good purposes will still be served, not despite, but even through the terrible choices that we make uh, and the abuses of our own free will. And here we see another example. So we are here uh, and the doom of Mandos rests upon us. And yet... Through that, we have this opportunity uh, to reach out to the younger children and help to establish them uh, and to make them our peers within Middle-earth, as doubtless Iluvatar would intend, right? This is my what I'm thinking, Finrod is thinking at the beginning, right? So he brings them into Nargothrond and he's like, okay, you guys are, we're all, we're all working together. But as Nick was pointing out, what are they going to do? Like, actually do when they're in there? They're... The elves are, uh, like, they can't... What, are they going to become artisans, right? They could learn from the elves, but how are they possibly going to do anything significant? Like, as you know, as, as Nick was pointing out, you can't... As a human craftsman, you can't possibly hope to 
you know, come to a place in your art where you can even be doing anything on the on anything like the level of somebody who's got literally thousands of years to practice this, right? What do they have to contribute? What can they do in Nargothrond? Are they going to get a wing to decorate themselves? Um, and is that not going to be embarrassing, right? It's, you know, and 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 so Nick was suggesting there's likely to be a tendency for the humans increasingly to just do unskilled labor, essentially, because the skilled labor in Nargothrond is already in better hands, right? And um, guess what? The people who are doing it, they don't need heirs, right? They don't need like to train up an apprentice to take over the shop when they're gone because they'll never leave, right? So all of the skilled artisans are way better than every human and never and not going anywhere, right? So, like, they can be taught things, um, but um, I, anyway, it's, uh, I, I, I think it's, um, it's very possible. It's very possible um, that this kind of dynamic would come. Now, what, so the one thing I would say, Nick, is I wouldn't go too far with this, right? Because I do think that it is very possible that there would be some among the men who would just be like gifted in a particular way, which would surprise the men. And the parallel that I mean, in as much as we're thinking of the Valinorian parallel, think of Feanor, right? Feanor, but not just Feanor in particular, but the Noldor in general produce things that the Valar themselves marvel at, right? Even though, I mean, I know you don't have the same difference in time dynamic, which introduces a new element, right, in the division or, you know, sort of the differences between elves and men. Um, that is that is not a difference between the Valar and, uh, uh, and, and elves. But still, even though the elves are much more limited, obviously, in what they can accomplish than, say, Aule himself, right? Yet, nevertheless, Aule himself did not conceive jewels in the way that they do, right? Not even just the Silmarils, but jewels in general. Um, and many of the things which they do um, is uh, are, you know, sort of surprising and genuinely delightful to the elves. Um, I would think that, uh, yeah, uh, Nick points out uh, uh, Turin being a good example of this. Yes, yes. I mean, he... Um, uh, he is, of course, the closest Feanor parallel that we get among the elves, uh, among the humans, actually, parallel to, 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 to Feanor, um, uh, in the, certainly in the sense of hogging superlatives uh, in the way that, uh, that, uh, that Turin does. Um, um, but um, anyway, and yeah, I agree, Nick, that the, the whole, the way that they, the way that the elves of Nargothrond are eventually going to um, uh, are eventually going to nickname Turin Elfman uh, doesn't speak well of their view of men in general, right? Uh, well, you're so amazing. You're almost as good as we are, right? And uh, yeah, it's uh, um, yes, I agree. Um, but um, anyway, um, so. Now again, I'm not so I'm not trying to suggest that we try to do an exact parallel, right? That uh, you know that w- that we have like uh, some kind of craft or something in which the men are better than the elves in ways like the Noldor, you know, with their, uh, uh, you know, with some of their craftsmanship and stuff. Um, I, I don't mean that it should be a parallel that exact. I'm just saying I don't think it would necessarily be true that 
Although it is true that they are not going to be able to rise to the same, you know, levels of craftsmanship. That doesn't mean that I think they're necessarily going to be seen, be seen as inferior about everything all the time. Um, I think that there's, there's some potential for, uh, respect there in, um, in other ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick says it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world uh, if we were to demonstrate a bit of casual, unintended racism going on. Yeah, well, there would be, uh, certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, that would happen, even by benevolently, under the benevolent intentions uh, of uh, uh, of the elves of Nargothrond. Um, what would it be, though, by the way, if there's something... If there's an if there were an area that the humans would be good at, right? Is if there's is if there's something um, that the uh, that the humans would stand out with, what would it be? Do you think? What do you think? Um, yeah, Florian was saying elven apprenticeships probably take decades or even a century. When a human tries one, elves would look like bad teachers to humans, or even like they didn't trust men to learn at more than a glacial pace. Florian, that would actually be a really interesting dynamic, wouldn't it? To be like, what, like, do you think I can't handle this? Why are we, you know, uh, I was like, well, and, you know, I will teach you a new text text technique in three years time, right? Try do keep doing this for three years. Um, just not understanding that that's how it works. Right. Um, interesting. Rhiannon and Stephen cover are both suggesting inventions like labor saving inventions. Um, Oh yeah, there you go. That, that is interesting. That is a, because that is a way that the elves are not likely to think, right? Because when you've got nothing but time, you can afford to take, a long time doing things, right? Doesn't it, doesn't it in fact seem like elves would be, they'd, they'd be more inclined than the other, like they would view those sorts of inventions as like crude. Right, right. Uh, they, you know, that it's like, well, oh, well, like, like not true craftsmanship. Oh, well, like, you know, the, you're, you're taking a shortcut instead right. of uh, really getting hands on and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That yeah, Nick was just thinking about that uh was thinking in that same direction uh as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, uh Nick is, was trying to think of examples. Mills was one uh his his uh other suggestion is uh like a lathe, right? So instead of taking, you know, so humans instead of like hand carving something into a perfectly round shape, right? Uh, you know, like a, a, a human invents a, a lathe which spins around and, hey, look, you can do it real quick this way. Um, and the elves would never think about that, right? They would, they would never even want to. It wouldn't even occur to them that a faster way to do this would be desirable, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I like this idea. I like this idea. Um, uh, Matt Duke is wondering about looms. Uh, can you, how do you weave without a loom? Is that possible? I don't know enough about weaving to even know if that's possible. Uh, um, I mean, we know that they do weave. Weaving is definitely a thing. Um, uh, so I think they would have to have looms. Um, but I mean, there certainly could be like improvements or things that they could do. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. They could be, um, yeah, exactly, uh, Steve and Cover. I could imagine a uh, a situation in which a human is like apprenticed to a weaver in Nargothrond, right? Um, and what they do, like during the year in which they're supposed to be like repeating the same thing over and over again until they, you know, have it perfectly. Uh, instead, they like develop, you know, new techniques for, um, uh, you know, to like improve the, you know, how the, um, you know, how the, 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 the threads get to the loom and how everything, you know, goes, you know, new tools and things for, uh, uh, for, for making the work more efficient. Um, yeah, exactly. Like flying shuttle looms, Nick. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, um, that kind of thing would be that's exactly how I, th- I think it's a really wonderful example of how human minds would be humans would be coming up with things that elves wouldn't come up with. But it's not an issue of like who's smarter or who's better. It's just an illustration of their minds think in different ways. And this is a particularly good example because it really emphasizes not just that humans have this kind of ingenuity that the elves lack, but it, it points to something deeper beneath the surface, right? It points to the urgency that is one of the primary um, themes of human life. Right. That like their time is precious, whether you view it in years or whether you view it in minutes, um, their time is precious and they are, they have this drive to do and to accomplish. And, to, you know, th- this whole they have, they are they have this whole carpe diem attitude, which the elves can't understand in any way at all. Um, and I think that would be a really, really interesting way. Uh, to sort of uh, to s- sort of show that, and it can lead to it could lead to sort of tension, right? But but Nick, I don't want to move away entirely from your observation. I do, you know, when I ask myself, um, just exactly the questions, Nick, that you were asking, uh, this, the really interesting thought question: What happens when you have a generation of humans growing up in this environment, right? What happens to them? What are they like? Um, what kind of cultural consequences would there be? Uh, and I've got to think that one of the concerns, it, they could end up becoming, Nick, and, and we can show this in some cases, them becoming sort of servile, right? In the sense of they, they, they're the ones who go around and they do the unskilled labor. Uh, and so although the elves intended to bring them in and like, this is again, like, you know, the two children of Iluvatar living together in, in harmony and equality. Um, yet what actually ends up happening is they end up kind of looking like servants, right? They're doing all of that menial work. Remember, we already talked about this a little bit before, like the elf whose job it is to sweep the floors. What is the attitude of a floor sweeping elf, right? Or servant elves. Um, uh, you know, how do they, how does that, what is the life, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of an elf whose job is a menial task? Um, and, uh, and of course, we talked about the, 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 the ways in which there would certainly be a kind of beauty and artistry. And, of course, the thing that I primarily have in mind is the barrel song, right, in The Hobbit, the, the splash plump song. Um, you know, the song of joy and delight that they sing of ploshing the barrels into the river seems to me actually a pretty good glimpse of the life of servant elves, right? Um, because uh, that's a that's a pretty menial job, right? Um, but um, 
anyway, uh, nevertheless, again, I can easily imagine, Nick, exactly as you're suggesting, um, elves, even if they're entirely positively minded, like if they're really, they're being as benevolent and generous and thoughtful as they possibly can, they might see the frustration. Like, look, we're trying to teach them the complicated things, right? Like Smithcraft, but boy, like this, they, 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 they die before an apprenticeship is even over, right? Much less can they ever go on to achieve mastery. Golly, that must be frustrating. And they can see that some of their, the relationships between some of the artisans and the human apprentices are kind of strained for reasons that the elves don't fully understand. Like, why is it the humans seem to feel insulted by the pace at which they're being asked to work and stuff? Um, so maybe we should shift, right? Maybe we should, um, uh, maybe we should encourage them to do some other things, right? Maybe this will be, they'll be happier. Uh, doing, you know, these simpler things that they can get the hang of in only, you know, five or ten years. Like floor sweeping, for instance. Oh, floor sweeping. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they you know, I bet you with only 10, 15 years of training, they could be really good at mucking the stables, right? Um, so we'll have some of our muck stable, our, our stable mucking specialist elves, you know, train them at that. And, um, and, you know, and then and then because they could achieve mastery in, in in stable mucking. Right. And that'll be satisfying for them compared to the frustration that they're currently experiencing, you know, as we try to teach them these other things. Again, it, I, I could imagine that kind of thought process happening and therefore have one of the dynamics there, Nick. Right. One of the things that we do see happening is there is sort of a tendency towards them doing simple things. Right. And also finding labor-saving uh, shortcuts, right, in order to make that uh, job efficient, more efficient and, and, uh, and, and easier in ways that are often kind of shocking the elves. Um, uh, but um, uh, so that's one thing. But another thing, again, when I ask myself, how do I see this culture evolving? I can easily see them evolving towards like Laziness? Hedonism? You know, I mean, there's nothing for them to do. There's no needs that the community really has, right? There's no niche that they need to fill. They're not actually useful. The point that Finrod needs to learn is that the life that he's inviting them into, he's inviting them to share the lives of the elves of Nargothrond, which is, here we are in this relatively constrained existence because we're in a secret place, right? Um, so, you know, we're not living public lives. We're living, you know, we as a culture are sort of sheltered and living this private sheltered life. And they can come and join in bliss and peace and um, and joy, right? To share our joys as we go through century by century together, right? Um, but that's not what humans are good for. That's That life isn't good for them. Right. And they like there's they don't they're not needed for anything. There's not, you know. And so eventually they um, uh, some of them, you know, some of them would become like servants. Some of them would be valuable, though, again, their value would not maybe even be really appreciated by the elves. Again, like those who are inventing uh, inventions and things. Um, and they would 
probably be a little bit frustrated by the elves' failure to appreciate that. Um, I would... Um, yeah. So, but... Um, but I do think a lot of them would be lazy, dissolute, even. Um, one of the things that I, I, I think Andreth should perceive is that ultimately this is going to be, um, this is leading her people um, in a, a downward spiral, right? Um, that ultimately she, she is going, she could convince Finrod that she can only see one of two outcomes for her people living like this. One would be to become the mindless thralls of the elves in all but name. And the second would be to become their pets, basically. Um, you know, a, a, just like lapdogs or cats. Um, and, and or, or, or alternatively, civil war. Right. Because as Marie is saying, young men standing in the corner with no work, standing on the corner with no work to do. Yeah, there there could well be some young, feisty, impatient, bored and frustrated, you know, young people among the House of Beor who, you know, go out and, you know, graffiti the walls and, and, you know, set things on fire, uh, because they're bored and there's nothing to do. Um, uh, yeah. Nick says you can really see young humans rejecting their parents for being servile to the man. Absolutely. Yeah. To, to, to uh, to the elf, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the elf's trying to keep you down, right? Um, and obviously that's not their intention, but th- those, those kinds of tensions could easily come. Um, you know, so Andreth being the one to kind of walk Finrod through this and show him. So, but Finrod's not dumb, right? Finrod knows that it's not really working out very well. But my guess here is that Finrod, being the kind-hearted, generous guy that he is, his first conclusion is going to be, we're not doing it right, right? I, I'm... What else can we provide? How else can we, what can we do differently, right? We're trying to do everything we can. We don't understand why it's not going well, right? Why you guys are not thriving. It seems to me you guys should be thriving, right? Why are you not thriving? And that's what Andreth is going to show, because he doesn't understand, because he doesn't get people. He doesn't understand how the human perspective is different from the elves. And that's what Andreth teaches. Again, that's what the Athrobeth is all about, right? So that's like phase one of the Athrobeth conversation is her showing him, look, this is what you're not getting. We aren't, we can't live like you guys. Um, yeah, Nick says it's like that rat experiment where they give the rats everything they could possibly need. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, or like, uh, or like the earlier versions of the Matrix that they had to take down because they failed, right? Uh, when they made it a paradise and everyone disbelieved in it, right? Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Um, so that seems to me 
that so you know that you know questions that we have here on our slide here you know is is the is the problem that humans that, or is Andreth's viewpoint that the humans can't be coddled by the elves they can't be subservient to the elves um, they have finite lives and must live them out fully not trapped by elven timelines timelines and laws um, all, of, all yes all of the above all of the but I would lay the primary emphasis on the third one what she helps him to understand is. We have only a limited time, and it is in our outlook, like it is in our blood to um, seek for things to accomplish, to make use of our time, because we only have a limited time. Um, We can't bide our time for centuries just waiting for the opportunity to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Florian, I agree with you. It would be really interesting to show um, a human and elf child born at the same time in Nargothrond, right? Um, and how they're aging differently. Uh, Andreth could show this, right? Um, what if Andreth takes Finrod um, and introduces him to a frustrated 25-year-old, one of the young layabouts who's causing trouble in Nargothrond, right? Um, which doubtless is going to be the biggest concern. I mean, if there are people like actually going out and committing vandalism and stuff like that, right? Um, those who are who are really agitating against the man or against the elf, um, that's something that's going to really obviously come to Finrod's attention, and he's going to be puzzled and even hurt by this. Like, what? I don't understand. This just seems like ingratitude. Uh, you know, what's what's going on? And Andreth will introduce him to one of the 25-year-old guys, you know, who's... De- and then they'll go and they'll visit, like, one of the 25-year-old elves who was born at the same time and be like, look, look, look. Um, I, I like that. And Maria, exactly. I am precisely thinking, of course, of the conversation that Hurin and Huor have with Turgon. Right. Um, it is. It's, it's exactly the same. And that's... Uh, the, the, now, you want, you, if you ask... If it's going to be exactly the same, then how is it going to? How are we not going to be just repeating ourselves when we get there? Um, we the the theme is the same, but when we get there, of course, we're not going to have that conversation until next season. The the Turgon conversation, I mean, with Hurin and Huor, um, that will give us an opportunity during season during the ne- during later when it happens, right? Whenever we make that conversation occur, um, we'll be recalling this stuff, right? The audience will already know all of this stuff. So they will only have to recall it very, very briefly and we'll know. But of course the drama is its application to Gondolin, right? Where nothing is supposed to change and nobody's supposed to leave. Um, so yeah. So Stephen, uh, Stephen H., it's not that Finrod is not aware that there's a problem. It's just that he can't understand it. He has no framework to understand what is bothering them. And he sees that there are problems. He sees that there are problems, but he just, he wants to try to, he assumes there must be something in the environment, right? There must be something that's causing them unhappiness. And if we could just find that, find it out and remove it, right? If we could just improve the circumstances somehow, then this state of bliss that I've always envisioned surely will come to be because he's going to be stubborn in saying, I, you know, in saying, I refuse to believe that humans and elves just can't be happy together. Right. And I refuse to believe that humans are just like corrupt. Right. That they're just evil. 
Um, but there will be some in Nargothrond who are going to be saying, especially if there is a younger generation who's like out there, you know, like, uh, you know, TPing the homes of elves of Gondolin. Um, th- there are going to be some of the elves of Gondolin who are going to be saying, you know what, like, they're, it's it's like they're under the influence of of Morgoth, obviously. Like they're they're like little orcs over there, right? Um, we can't help them. We've tried. We've tried for a long time now. We're just going to have to give up on this. But Finrod is not going to want to give up, right? Finrod is not going to want to give up, and um, so therefore his determination not to give up on them, not to look down on them, not to reject them is going to lead him to say, what can we change? What can be better? And it's going to take Andreth to explain to him what the cause is because he can't see it. Can't see it at all. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Yeah, Stephen. So Stephen uh, H is asking, did he forget the unrest of the Noldor? Um, that's the. In, he knows certainly in retrospect that the unrest of the Noldor was in large part due to the influence of Morgoth, right? There's no Morgoth here, or Stephen. Maybe he suspects something like that. Maybe when he sees this happening, he's like, "There are agents of Morgoth among us. There must be. Look at the evil that's being done." And he might say, "It's just like what happened, you know. Uh, you know, now we know. We the Noldor have been through this before, right? And we have seen how this dissatisfaction with Valinor arose. And we know that those were that that was those were lies that were sown in our hearts by Morgoth. So doubtless there are agents of Morgoth at work, right?" You know, and Nick, exactly. He knows what happens at the Marath Adarthad. That kind of thing happens, right? So maybe he's looking around for the spy. Maybe, you know, there are lots of reasons why he wouldn't understand what the real problem is and why Andreth would and would be in a position to explain it to him. Exactly, Nick. He's never going to forget Sauron's hurdy-gurdy as who would, right? Uh, so absolutely, that's exactly it. Um, <clears throat> so, um... Right, and Nick points out that human inventions will look a lot like Sauron's hurdy-gurdy, which would make him even more uncomfortable. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, the whole concept of immortality and what the implications of it are, it's not strange that it's going to take them a while, the elves, a while to understand what it means, to understand the implications. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that that works. I think that that works really well. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So that's the environment in Nargothrond. And by the way, this is why I really like the idea. I, I like more than ever the idea of them being in Nargothrond exactly because it's a closed community. It's being a closed community enables us, um, to build this as almost a kind of experimental case. Right. Um, An experimental case of what happens when you when you take a human population and you just you join them right with the elves. Right. Um, You you invite them to essentially live an elvish life. What happens? Right. Um, We don't get anywhere else where we're going to get that opportunity. So, you know, I, I think that that's 
that's really fun and provides a really, really excellent starting place, especially since it's Finrod, right? This is what starts Finrod on his journey of understanding men in ways most of the other elves don't care that much, actually, right? Carinthir, not probing, right, into the depths of the human psyche and how it differs from elves, right? Finrod cares and pursues this, right? And Andreth is the one who earns his respect by showing him, teaching him for the first time, opening his eyes uh, to this reality, right? And he will keep going back to her when she's up in Nargothrond. He'll be coming to visit. He'll come to visit his brothers anyway, right? But he uh, uh, is going to come in to visit Andreth and to keep up with her. Um, not just because he wants to continue to advise her, which he does, but also because he wants to continue learning from her. Um, he wants to continue these discussions. He knows, he comes to believe, okay, yes, right, she's right. The human, we shouldn't keep the humans here. Um, but that doesn't mean he wants to separate himself from them entirely. He, he, uh, so he keeps up with her, and this gives us opportunity to reconnect Finrod and Andreth at various points along the way. Um, let's um, let's pause for a second. That would bring us to talking about Ignor and Andreth and Ignor's relationship. But before we do that, let's let's look at let's look at timelines. Okay, so I have this is uh, really blown up, uh, but this is these are the, some some timelines. They got sort of uh, a, a shot at some genealogies here in the middle, um, and then we've got some events. So the vertical lines represent important events, uh, which we can uh, which we can see. Um, so these th- these first three vertical lines uh, represent the arrival in Beleriand of the three different uh, peoples. Um, and then we've got the you know the the horizontal lines are the lifespans of some of these important characters. So the red ones are the uh, the the uh, house of Hador in the middle. The green is the house of Haleth up at the top, and the bottom, the purple here, uh, is the house of Beor. So let's look at how the times uh, would work here. So we've got Beor, and Beor's death. This purple line right here is the death of Beor. This is an important moment, obviously. Um, oh, wait, that reminds me before I go on. Nick, I wanted to come back to Beor um, and Beor not just being a lapdog. Here's my thought here. Beor, by the time of his death, begins to see the direction that this is going, right? Um, he begins to see the direction that it's going and he's uneasy. But I think that Beor, first of all, is not, he's not going to, he's not as wise as Andreth. He's not going to foresee the direction. That's what Andreth has that he doesn't have, right? She has the wisdom and the intelligence to put together. This is, this is the road that we're headed down, right? And it's headed for one of these various highly undesirable outcomes, right? Beor's not going to see that. Plus, this was Beor's initiative. Beor's committed to this. Right, he wants the humans living in Nargothrond to work. He he and he shares Finrod's vision completely. Right, Finrod's vision of like the two children living together and uh, you know uh, 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 forming this you know joint community in Nargothrond. Beor loves this idea. 
Um, and he is committed to it, and he believes very much, he relies very much on Finrod's wisdom. He's going to see some unhappiness beginning right around him. Um, but he's going to think that it's a phase that they're going to get through. And I would think, this is just a guess on my part, um, but I would, um, uh, I would suggest that he, um, I would suggest that he, when he dies on his deathbed, he is thinking there are some, there are some problems and some of my people are unhappy Right? There is an unhappiness that is growing among them. But I am happy as I die knowing that my friend Finrod is not dying. Right? He's still going to be. So he will still be here in his wisdom to see them through. So there are going to be growing pains. Right? But, but I believe that it's going to work out. And I trust in Finrod that he will help my people to do what is best for them long term. And of course, in the end, he's right. He's going to help them. He's going to let them leave. Um, but so the place that I see him is not having him just be mindless, um, nor certainly have him be completely blind to the unhappiness of things. But, uh, but again, he's, he's more invested than Andreth because it was his idea, right? Again, he totally buys in. Andreth is born into it, right? So it's different for her. Beor buys into it commits to it himself, but also is more dependent in this way, I think, upon Finrod, right? Um, he is not, I mean, Andreth is just flat out smarter than he is. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't see it, I think, in the, to, in the same, uh, um, uh, to the same, to the same degree. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't see what else we need Bayor's character to be. He can be good and admirable in some ways, certainly for his uh, for his friendship and his loyalty, uh, his desire to do good for his people. But not every leader has to be a really good leader, right? Ultimately, his decision is going to... I wouldn't even say that his decision would be a wrong one. It's not going to work out, right? But he wasn't to know that. It's not a bad move for him to say, like, I'm going to move my people into a place where they'll be safe and protected and provided for and and uh, where they have the opportunity to learn and develop in ways that nobody else could imagine. Like, that seems like a good call, actually. Um, and the full effects of it, like the, the, the kind of negative things that are going to emerge, aren't really necessarily going to be seen until... Later, significantly later, but generations later, potentially. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick says he's like Ingwe, perfectly happy sitting at Manway's feet. Yeah, kind of, kind of. I mean, I'm fine having, um, showing Beor that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Marie says he can be simply disappointed in the young folks, not recognizing the underlying issues. It's quite possible, right, that he would be uh, frustrated by those who can't appreciate what they have. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, they don't... 
Yeah, they they don't know what what it was like out there. It's certainly true. I mean, the the new generations of men who are going to grow up within Nargothrond are going to have no concept of the struggles that like you know, Holith's people have gone through. Not just the, you know, the difficulties of like, you know, the the crossing through the Nandan Gortheb, but I mean just living in the woods, right? Carving out their existence uh in the wilderness, you know, on their own in the way that they are. Um they will never have done anything like that. Um so yeah, there's going to be a lot that they're going to take for granted. Um so I would say Nick that he's going to think that the young people should be more grateful and happy and he's not going to be totally wrong. Like that's definitely a perspective. Um, there, there will be a kind of element of ingratitude. I think. I mean, it seems almost inescapable. Um, you know, like, I, uh, you know, like kids who grow up who you know have always had everything and have never struggled. Right? They, they don't have to be bad people uh, to take for granted all that they have and not really appreciate its value. Um. Yeah, exactly, Nick. Like uh, like the way Depression-era grandparents talk today. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, they're not wrong, right? They're not wrong. Uh, there's definitely, there's definitely a point there. But so, yeah, so that's what I, I think that, and that's why I think he doesn't have the insight. That's why I don't think Beor is the one to make the move or, or even to say on his deathbed, I think our people should go. Um, but let me look at Andreth's life here. So we've got Andreth's lifespan. She's here in the middle. Let me uh, see if I can expand one more time here. No? Can I? Hang on. There we go. Yes, I can. All right. So here we've got Andreth starting a little bit. Oh, I got 361 or so. So we've got her going out to... Yeah, we're already pushing her to, what, 95 the orange line here at the end is the Dagor Bragalach. Uh, that's the sudden flame there at 455. Um, so even if we have her die, you know, like in the aftermath there, um, I agree it's going to be hard to push her back a little further than this. I, Well, ideally I would love to have her overlap with Bayor just a touch if it were possible. But... Um, Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah, no, she can't be born earlier. Um, Yeah, we could stretch Bayor out, but we'd have to stretch him out. I mean, okay, like right now we're looking at a gap of six years, like her being born six years after Bayor's death. But in order for her to be... What I'm thinking is something almost like succession. But but maybe actually this works really well. Maybe this Maybe this is fine. We don't have them overlap. 
Um, so the question becomes, who rules Beor's people when Beor dies, if Andreth is not even born yet? Answer, nobody. Why would they need a ruler? Right? That's one of the problems. They don't need a ruler. They don't need, there's like, there's nothing to rule. There's nothing to do. Um, and um, yeah, so no, we can, I, I agree. If we needed to, we could put, we could shove Beor a little bit. He's stretching out pretty far back there. Um, so no reason we can't shove him a little further forward um, if we wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, well, it's going to depend upon how our episodes want to go, right? I mean, how we how we want to how we want to do this. I kind of I kind of like if Andreth is basically sort of third generation, right? So, okay, so let's say the people of Beor, what year do they get to Nargothrond, right? When do they move in? If he meets Finrod, you know, up here in 310, right? And then he dies at 355. So there's 45 years of the Finrod-Beor bromance, right? Um, They move pretty early on, right? But I'm saying if we get them settled in Nargothrond by, say, 320 at the latest, right? That still gives plenty of time between 320 and 355. That's 35 years. So this the first generation, right? First generation immigrants to Nargothrond, those who came, who journeyed in and remember the outside. Many of them will still be around, of course, because some of them will have been quite young, much younger than Beor, of course. Um, and most of them are not dying of anything. Most of them are living a fairly long life because, like, what are they going to die of in Nargothrond, right? Um, I mean, some of them will die sometimes. But still, it, it's, it's, their life expectancy is going to be a good deal higher than life ex- your average life expect- expectancy among the Haladin, right? Um, but... Um, yeah. Ooh, sorry. I was just sorry. The phrase that just floated through my head was infant mortality. Infant mortality. What would the elves make of that? Anyway, sorry. Oh boy. <laughs> right? I mean, because that's unusual for elves. Elf babies don't just die. Like that? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, so all right. Uh, whatever. Point is, the first generation of people will be older, but many of them still around at the time of Beor's death. There will have been a second generation who have been born in Nargothrond, Right. Babies born in Nargothrond will be ages 35 and down by the time of Beor's death. So we have a second generation firmly established, a third generation just growing. Andreth is one of those, right? So Andreth, that makes Andreth a third generation Nargothrond baby, right? Um, which I think puts her, that actually seems to me quite right. As she's growing up with a third generation of men to live in Nargothrond, um, by the time she's, so let's see, by the time she's 20, right? Um, 
or less, even by the time she's 15, right, in 375. By 375, it's been at least 55, maybe 60 years since the men came. So the only, the, you know, only people who were like babes in arms and carried into Nargothrond by their parents would still be alive at that time, right? So at the time when Andreth is beginning to come into her own as wise woman, and she's going to be, she's going to be spunky. She's going to be like leadership potential from the beginning. Um, she's going to be a go-getter from an early age, I would say. Um, not a go-getter in the physical warrior woman sense, but again, in the like, just wise set, like taking, caring for the needs of her people, uh, being, uh, being somebody who can, you know, resolve disputes and, and counsel people who are, uh, who are struggling. Um, anyway, so yeah, by the time she comes up, she comes, uh, into her own there, uh, in, uh, you know, by, as I say, by, you know, 376, between 375 and 380. Um, there won't be anybody basically left around who remembers the old days, right? Um, all there will be the older generation, um, will, you know, like the middle-aged uh, and elderly folks there in Nargothron will be people who grew, who all grew up there, right? And then there's going to be the younger generation now growing up there who's going to be like one further step along in the problem. This, of course, enables her um, uh, uh, to... Um, this is going to enable her to... Um, uh, see the like trajectory better, right? Uh, to understand the path that her people are headed down um, in order for her to explain this to Finrod. Um, yeah. Okay, so Nick says he's not crazy about the idea that she has a better handle of the problem than Bayor when she doesn't even know anyone who went through what Bayor did. No, she won't understand what happened in the past firsthand or even secondhand, right? Well, could be secondhand, uh, she could have written records. Um, a couple of people before were suggesting that this is, of course, another thing that the humans would probably do that the elves would not. Written scholarship. Um, yes, writing chronicles and things. Uh, the elves would find that somewhat strange. Um, but I could easily imagine, especially, you know, the first generation of the men to arrive there in Nargothrond who would be interested in, in like preserving chronicles. So there could be a great deal of written wisdom that's handed down, uh, uh, which Andreth has access to. Um, but again, I don't think she needs to know what came first. Um, what she, what the insight that she has, Nick, that Beor lacks is more information, more more data points to show the trajectory of the line of their culture, right? As someone who is growing up with the third generation, she can see the trend and she knows where things were before because she can read about it, right? And stories are going to be passed down. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, oral tradition is more likely, but again, I do kind of like... The, and oral tradition is definitely more likely among the other men, but I wonder if the people of Beor would become somewhat bookish in Nargothrond. What else do they have to do, right? So they could become bookish. They could actually write things and become um, one of the first non-oral cultures 
of the humans, actually. That would be a little bit interesting. Then Andreth would have to bring her library with her up to Dorthonian, and then it would burn down. Uh, so, uh, and here endeth the first written culture of, of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, the Adine, basically, as, you know, Barahir and his group of outlaws, uh, you know, are all stuck in their cave with only their, you know, a couple, a handful of paperbacks remaining. Um uh, so anyway, I'm just saying. I, I think it. I think it. I think it could be interesting. Um, yeah, Nick. Exactly. It would be kind of fun if the original chronicles of the history of Nargathron were penned by humans. And I agree. It would be another interesting place for us to show the difference between the perspectives of elves and men. Um, how the elves of Nargathron would probably find this adorable, right? Because like, kind of useless, right? They just wouldn't understand why the humans would like. Why do you? I mean, again, eventually they'd be like, oh, yeah, like you guys die. So I guess like this is how you transmit learning to your children. OK, like that's but that's it's kind of I mean, it's like a little bit sad and a little bit cute and everything. But like, why? Why write a history of Nargathron? Like we we were there. We were we remember it. Right. Um, why should we ever need that? Exactly. Um, oh, yeah. Nick. So Nick wants the uh, uh, um, the the documents that are part of Bilbo's translations from the Elvish to have originally been authored by human historians would be pretty interesting, right? Um, uh, especially if, like, imagine Bilbo unearthing that, Nick, right? Um, now, of course, very few documents from Narcathrond are likely to survive either, unless Glaurung kept uh, a lot of the books as part of his hoard. Uh, but even that, of course, has a sad ending. Um, but uh, Though I guess you don't have to throw the books into the river. Anyway, um, but uh, anyhow, yeah, no, I'm 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 kind of teasing here, but um, but yeah, no, I I like that idea. I like that, again, I I don't want I don't want to be too black and white about this. I don't want this just to be like oh, like the humans all go straight to seed right when they're here with the elves. Like this is obviously a terrible, terrible. No, there'll be some good things too. Like that, many of the there will be many ways in which the people of Beor will be ahead of other people. Like, we'll have advantages that the other peoples don't have. Um, and th- their, their, their literacy and their, um, their focus on, like, history and, uh, and, um, and teaching and learning, right, and education will be way beyond even the people of Hador, um, uh, I would think. So, um, anyway... I, 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 that would be an example, I think. Plus, again, like the whole, like, uh, you know, impulse to invention things and stuff like that. Um, but, um, anyway. uh, I, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I do like the, I like the idea of, um, Glaurung keeping the books. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. We come back to show Glaurung, like, you know, holding one of the books and trying to figure it out. Um, he, he, he seems like the kind of, he seems like the kind of villain who would have, who'd have, you know, like those kinds of like cultured habits that he would want to present himself in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Look at me. I'm, I'm preserving, I'm preserving <laughs> the elves of Nargothrond's culture. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm preserving history. Yeah. 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 I'm really doing uh, the world a favor. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Florian has an interesting perspective here. He says elves would write songs and poems about their history because they're beautiful, right? Like for the, for the, for the art of, uh, of, of, of the telling. And, uh, 
the way humans just chronicle events without aesthetic aspirations would seem weird to the elves, right? Like just uh, exactly a, a, a chronicle history. Like in this year, this is what happened, right? That would be alien, I would think, to elves who would they would sing songs of their, you know, to remember moments. You know, they, um, you know, we know that we're told that in the Silmarillion. Um, uh, but yes, the whole impulse to just write down and preserve lore in order to hand that on uh, to future generations um, uh, would be well, and strange. Plus the, the elves, the elves singing to remember is like a, that's like a, that's a, it's almost a completely different thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, because for them, it's not, they're not just like sort of recounting events and trying to like preserve the memory um, or have a record. Like they're re-experiencing it or reliving it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Now it's, 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 it's not, it's certainly not the same as, you know, having to be refreshed about what happened out of a book. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, okay. So, all right. So I'm, I'm talking myself into the idea of this slight gap between Bayor and Andreth. I, I kind of like situating Andreth as third generation. Um, if Bara here. Let's see. Okay. Now let me work back from the end. Baron. Uh, Baron is early 20s at the Dagor Bragalak. That's fine. Bara here is old. Bara here is 56 ish. 56, 57 at the Dagor Bragalak. Okay. Um,. But it certainly suggests we don't want to move him any further back. Um, that tells me Bari here can't be born any later than that, for sure. Um, or sorry, he can't be born any earlier than that, for sure, is what I mean. Um, yeah, we, 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 we don't want him older than that at the Dagor Bragalak. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, great. Yeah, we have uh, here. We have some of their the ages of some of these folks there. Yeah, good. At the Dagor. Thank you, Rhiannon. I appreciate that. Okay. So. All right. That would mean. Bara here is born. When Andreth is. In mid 30s. Early 30s. Yeah, mid to late thirties. Okay. So when do we want the removal? Um, this purple line in the middle is the suggested time for Andreth and Ignor to fall in love. This is when she's twenty-three. Seems a decent enough time for her to fall in love. Mm-hmm. When do we want them to leave Nargothrond? I'm thinking, uh, yeah. Nick, is this an uncompressed timeline? Didn't I want to compress this? This seems uncompressed to me. I say we do without a few of these decades. Simplify this whole situation. 
because here's my issue. Um, I don't see any... I, okay, let, let me say it this way. I need somebody to convince me. I need somebody to convince me that we need anybody as part of our story, as like major characters in our story in the House of Beor. I need somebody to convince me that we need anybody but Beor, Andreth, and Bari here in Baron. I know we've got others. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, we want uh, Baragund and Belagund so that they can be the fathers of Morwen and Rian. Great, let them be the fathers of Morwen and Rian off stage, right? We don't need them. We don't need them. We don't need to care. We can work out that we can involve them in the genealogies and stuff. That's fine. Um, uh, and sometimes I feel, by the way, that like, uh, you know, the, uh, you guys on the discussion boards and I are sort of speaking at cross purposes here when I talk about eliminating them. I'm not talking about making them not exist. I don't care. They can exist. I'm saying as characters in our story, right, as people who take the stage at any point during season five. That's what I'm right at this stage of the show. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking we don't, I'm thinking if we have Beor and Andreth with Adonel as a kind of bridge between the two of them, right? And then Andreth in her youth, right? Um, and with the support of Adonel, right? So Andreth in her youth with the support of Adonel leads the people to Dorthonian. They settle down in Dorthonian, and when they're in Dorthonian, they, um, uh, when they're in Dorthonian, they, she, like, b- b- let Bara here be young, then. Like, let Bara here be whatever, uh, whatever relationship we want to make him to her. You know, younger brother, nephew, don't particularly care, uh, because I don't think it needs to be this, the, the leadership of the house doesn't have to be a patri- patrilinear thing, as far as I'm concerned. Why should it be? Right. It can be from Bari here afterwards, perhaps for one generation. But anyway, it's fine. Um, so uh, Bayor to Andreth, Andreth to Bari here, and then the Dagor Bragalach. That's like the progression that I that to me makes the most sense because there's 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 functions for them. Right. Bari here is the one who now as Andreth, uh, she's starting to get older and she realizes also like we need. Uh, we, and she, you know, she, so her strapping young kinsperson, right? Kinsman Bari here. Um, she sees in him, like he is the, this, the, the, the future leader of her people, right? In this new adventurous, dangerous life that they're now living out here in Dorthonian. Um, they need somebody to lead them in the field and that's not her, right? Um, so, um, uh, so Bari here. Right. So she, and so she she focuses her own her leadership on like instructing Bari here. Right. On uh, on 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 guiding and supporting Bari here. And he as he grows uh, and, and under her guidance and with her support becomes the leader of the people in Dorthonian. Right. Because now they do need an active leader in the field. And that's Bari here. Um, and this, of course, puts him in a position to be rescuing elf lords and things like that during the battle. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, what would that make Baragund and Belagund in the genealogy? No idea, Stephen. I'm not even proposing a genealogy. I'm not to, and we work out the genealogy by all means, but here's, here's all I insist upon. All I insist upon is first we think about our story, what we're telling and what role the characters are going to have in the story, right? 
um, then we work out a genealogy that fits that. That's what I'm saying. We just we don't do it the other way around. We don't make the uh, we don't make the story fit the genealogy. And you know what? Tolkien didn't do that ever. Tolkien always had the story come first and then made the genealogy fit. That's all I'm suggesting is that we follow the same uh, we follow the same pattern. Um, now, uh, uh, Nick is reminding me that we want uh, Bari here to have a uh, you know. Uh, he says, wouldn't it be terrible if Barry here loses a brother at the Daigor Bragalak uh, and if his death mattered something to the audience? Okay, that's fine. We can do that. Let them let her have two protégés, right? Who work hand in hand, the two brothers. Uh, but fine. Cool. Great. Um, in the early Dorthonian period, um, have the both of them together and like the, 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 the wonderful prospects for the both of them. And then the tragic death of the one at the Daigor Bragalak. Great. Excellent. I have no objections to that. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's totally, that's totally fine. Um, okay. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, and Nick, if you want to work out a direct line from Bayor to Baron, that's fine. I'm not, I have no objections to that. I have no objections to that. Um, I'm just, I, I just, like. Let's free ourselves from the idea, certainly from the idea that the leadership of the house must be patriarchal, but secondly, even that it must be patrilinear, right? If it comes back to the house of Bayard, like to his actual genetic line, fine, great, cool. Um, but that doesn't mean like Andreth doesn't have to be his daughter or granddaughter in order for her to be the leader, right? Um, uh, it's like, you know, it's all, it's all good. But like I said, we can, um, we can, we can, we can sort that out, um, Okay, cool, fine. That's all good. Um, but yeah, let's 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 do some compression. I, I don't I don't I, I I personally I don't want Barry here to be what fifty six, uh, fifty five at the time of the Dagor Bragalak. Um, I, I I you know we don't need that much time to pass. Um, he can be younger. Um, he can definitely be younger than that. Um, notice, first of all, can I just point out a super weird trend? Um, a thing that I would actually say this, brace yourselves now. I'm going to criticize Tolkien. I don't usually do this, right? But I'm going to criticize Tolkien. One of the things in his human genealogies that has never made a lick of sense to me at all, why he always has the marrying and having kids so late like, it doesn't make sense. Like, humans don't act like that. Not when they're living lives like this. Not in times of danger and war and uncertainty. If elves don't get married and don't have kids during times of war, humans get married faster and have kids sooner. Like, for Barahir, the lord of his house, to not have a son until he's in his mid-30s, that's a long time. That's a long time. I mean... Uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, you absolutely can be much younger than that and have an adult son, Rhiannon. In this culture, are you kidding me? Like, he could be married at 17 and have Baron, bef- he, he could have his son born before he was 18. For goodness sake, my own father was 20 when I was born. (laughs) You know, my mother was a grandmother at age 40. I'm I'm, I'm from one of those families. You know, like, seriously, it's not that hard. (laughs) Um, It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, 
you know, again, it's I don't think that and this it bothers me like the, the way that like Theodred, you know, is unmarried. In, it, it, look at Theodred's age when he died. Completely irresponsible for the only son of the king to not be married and have he should have had four kids already for crying out loud. And he's not even married. Right. Uh, and Amir too, just as bad. And Faramir, for crying out loud, and Boromir, all of them, all of them, should have been married and had a bunch of kids a decade earlier on, right? Um, anyway, it's just, it's something that's always bothered me uh, about Tolkien's human genealogies. It just seems weird. He never has, like, teenage marriages, which were normal. I mean, if you weren't married by the time you were 20, you know, 500 years ago, that was late, right? Uh, I mean, seriously, and the Aragorn is a special case, Nick. I'm not getting on Aragorn's case, right? Uh, you know, yeah, he, sway, he sways that he's on way one far distant edge of the bell curve as far as waiting to get married. But again, like, uh, no criticism there, right? Um, not, uh, uh, not, no, no, no criticism at all there. But I'm just saying it's, uh, it's, um, it's weird. I find it weird. Um, so yes, Barahir absolutely can get married. Baron can be born no later than Barahir's twentieth year, and it would there would be nothing even vaguely abnormal about that. Um, so yeah, there is plenty of room for compression there. Not to mention, uh, he could be born earlier than this too. I, I mean, we have a full generation separating Andreth and Barahir here, right? Um, you know, again, like thirty-eight years. She's like thirty-eight when he's born. Why not have him born when she's a teenager? Right. So that when if in if like she's no more than, say, 20 when she leads the people to Dorothonian. Right. And I, I would kind of like her to have young Bari here. And uh, and yeah, it's fine. Um, you know, uh, the other be- Bregolas. Yeah. Um, young Bregolas and young Bari here, too. Right. The two of them could be, you know, uh, six you know, when they move to Dorthonian, right? Um, or 10 when they move to Dorthonian. Um, and then they get trained up, right? Once they get there. Um, that's, I think, uh, um, I think perfectly fine. No, I, Stephen, I get Tolkien's Victorian sensibilities, but this, he's not talking about the Victorian era. He is writing about an earlier era, and he knows perfectly well that is not how he knows that Anglo-Saxons did not wait until they were forty-five to get married. As a rule, especially if you're the heir of the king, right? So, like, it's just it's uh, it seems to me a kind of an odd blind spot if it is him projecting his own contemporaneous cultural values upon these people. That's an unusual mistake for him to make, I think. But, um, and yet, Nick, he wasn't that old when he got married. No, he got married young. Uh, remember, he was he was champing at the bit and had to be held back by his guardian, uh, or he would have he wanted to get married when he was like eighteen. So yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, so. We don't have time to do justice to the. Well, let me let me look at something else, Nick. I have your uh, timeline here. Hang on a second, I've got it somewhere. Um, I've got it somewhere. Hang on, uh, Marie. I see your genealogies too. I think they're on the document that I have. Uh, hang on, hang on. 
Nick, I'm looking for your thing. Ah, here it is. Here it is. Okay. All right, Nick. Here's... Let's see if I can make this big here. This is just a just a list here. Uh, okay. Oops. All right. Um, okay. Year 455, the year of the Dagor Bragalak. So he's counting in BDB before the Dagor Bragalak here. Okay, so you've got Hurin. I'm not even thinking about Hurin here. But let's see. Um, okay. You want Baron born 20 years before? So, you want, if so according to your timeline here, Nick, Baron is 20 at the Dagor Bragalak. Um, uh, you're marrying... Galdor off at age 28. Okay. I can live with that. Um, let's see. The birth of people I'm not thinking about right now. Okay, so you've got Bar here born. So you got Bar here 48. So you've compressed him a little bit, but not dramatically. Um, so you've got Bar here 28 years old when Baron is born. That's okay. I can live with that. Um, okay. The council happening seven years before that. Um, House of Bear moves to Dorthonian. Oh, you got that really early. But you've got it f- five years after Beor's death. Yeah, for my storyline, Andreth would have to over- would have to um, uh, overlap by a lot for that to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I wanted it after the council. Exactly. I did want the move to Dorthonian after the council. Um, and I don't see much advantage to having it be earlier. I mean, notice Nick here, you've got them moving to Dorthonian fully 22 years before Barahir is even born. Right. And again, I, I, I'm thinking to me, Barahir is like, he is... Dorthonian, right? I mean, think about the way that I the way that I have the storyline paced out, right? We've got Beor. Beor is the you know the face of the House of Beor in Nargothrond, right? Barahir is the face of the House of Beor's new life, right? He is the poster child of the House of Beor's new life in Dorthonian, right? Beor is the poster child of their old life in. Nargothrond, um, at least like the optimistic version of their old life. Andreth is, again, she's the transition, right? She is the one who sees that we need to move uh, to the new one. Um, so sure, her role is bigger than just being a poster child of any particular uh, era uh, of their period. But those two, those two do um, uh, the, the, you know, they do that work. I think that's really, uh, that's really neat, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. He's a little kid who grows up in Dorthonian and becomes a, a ranger slash warrior. Yeah, exactly. And he starts learning to become a warrior at whatever age. We, we, we can make him whatever age we want. I mean, do we like the idea of like a, a five-year-old Bari here um, who probably won't even remember Nargothrond or maybe one who's like 10 and will remember it? but only as a, a sort of a childhood memory, 
right? And his, you know, most of his whole life is, you know, training and growing up in, in, in Dorthonian. Um, I could see, uh, either way. Um, uh, Rihanna and I would, so Rihanna is asking, does Bari here need to become the leader immediately? Or could there be some time in which the house of Bayor adapts to their new lifestyle and realizes they need a different type of leader? Yeah, there can be. And I think that Andreth is the leader during most of that time. I think that like, cause again, Andreth is, she's, she's around, right? She was their leader when she moved out. They're not going to like fire her as soon as they get to Dorthonian. Right. Um, but I and I think that she is going to be the one to perceive like, OK, um, I'm flattered that you guys I, I know that you guys all trust me and everything. So trust me in this. We need somebody besides me to be the leader now. Like it's time uh, for. So so that would be an insight of hers. But that gives Bari here time, however old he is. Right. Um, uh, again, I kind of like the idea of him not being born in Dorthonian. I kind of like the idea of him being sort of part of the transition that like her escorting, you know, juvenile Barahir up to Dorthonian is kind of part of the sort of like the, the theme, right. Of the, of the shift. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. I, Nick, I'm going to address that question in a second and explain how it's not me that's wrong. It's you, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, uh, we're, 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 we're about to get into a debate about the relative timing of the, uh, um, uh, the council and, uh, the move to Dorthonian. Anyway, so like I said, I like Bar here coming along. And so her being in charge while he is growing up and then her deciding after he's grown up, you know, both of them, uh, he and Bregolas are grown up, um, then he's gonna, she's gonna like essentially abdicate. She's not going to totally, I mean, she's still there, right? She's still going to be the wise woman. Um, but she is going to recognize that, um, you know, the more active leadership of her young kinsmen is what's really needed here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Florian says it'd be, I, I think it'd be nice for Finrod to have known Barahir as a child, remembering him when Barahir rescues him at the Bragolak. I agree. That's an excellent reason, Florian, to have, um, uh, Barahir born, in Nargothrond. Um, uh, Florian, can you imagine, I, I, I can imagine a scene when they're leaving, right? Can, can you imagine Finrod like putting his head on young Barahir's, uh, his hand on young Barahir's head and, and blessing him, right? Um, uh, that would be really cool. That would be really cool. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, right. Anyway, so Stephen is asking about the romance with Ignor. No, no. Okay. I was going to just say one or two things about it, but I'm not going to say one or two things about it because I, I want to do justice to this. Uh, so let's save that for next time. Uh, but um, before we go, Nick, I want to come back to the, this question of the council. Nick wants to have, Nick is arguing and this is not a terrible idea, Nick. I'm not trying to say I think it's a terrible idea. Nick wants to have some of our disgruntled House of Beor folks from Nargothrond come to the council. Um, Bereg, of course, remember we had um, we had um, uh, uh, Amlach and Bereg as the two uh, anti-elf voices at the council, right? Amlach, who has his sort of semi-conversion experience because of the whole doppelganger, because of being doppelganged, uh, doppelganged, gung doppelganged 
Anyway, anyway, he's, this just happens to him, and so he has his change of heart, but Beric doesn't, and Beric leaves, right? Um, uh, so, um, anyway, yeah, okay, so Beric, of course, in the text, Beric is of the House of Beor. Um, I think I suggested before, but if I didn't suggest it before, I'm going to suggest it very strongly now. I don't like that. I don't want him to be from the House of Bayor. So here's, here's Nick, here's why I don't want the disgruntleds uh, to, to come there. I want... I think that that lessens Andreth's character. I want to heroize Andreth more than that. If things are already at a point where a chunk of people from the House of Bayor are seceding, right? If things have already unraveled to that point, then her insight to say we need to leave in order to preserve the situation is a day late and a dollar short. Okay? See what I mean? I mean, it's it's like, it's, it's, um, if she's only just doing desperate management of a crisis already in progress, then she's not going to play the role that I really want her to play. And I really want her to play the role of being wise enough to see it coming and stepping in to make the change before things go to crap. Um, that's, that's where I would like her to be. And I think it lessens her if it's only after things are completely unraveling all over the place that she's like, well, I guess we should go. You know, this makes her just like, leading them away in disgrace or something, right? Rather than saying, Finrod, we have to act now, right? We have to act now. This is the direction it's good. Because I am really wise and intelligent, I can see what's coming, right? And this is the destiny of this people. Here's how this relationship is going to go if we don't leave. And and that she's right, right? That she's right and that events would bear her out. Um, I, yeah, yeah. Um, so, hang on. So, Nick, I'm not understanding your... your so, and here's the other reason I don't want the Bereg at the council to be of the House of Beor, is that I want the House of Beor to be a Narkothrond. Uh, and the, I really enjoyed the story that we came up with last time for the house, for, for her Hador and the, the, other, the other people there, right? Um, the folks in Estelot, right? And the two different impulses of the anti-elves group, the aggressive, let's fight the elves and establish our own kingdoms and tell them where they get off trying to boss us around group, which was Omlok's group, and the mere secessionists, let's just get out of here, move back across the mountains away from these elves and mind our own business over an area door, right? Which is Bereg's group. But both of those stories are emerging from the Estelad culture, right? And that's the thing that I really like about, like, the Estelad culture is growing, like, there are three factions from within the Estelad, the native Estelad culture, right? Um, the one which supports the elves and wants to live alongside the elves, and then the two that I just described, the Amlok faction and the Bereg faction. For Bereg to come in from outside as a disgruntled, Nargath, Nar, oh, sorry, hang on a second here. Um, as a as a disgruntled Nargathron guy, right? It's not gonna. It's it, it, that doesn't work. He's not part of that culture, right? I I I, I want that to be part of the Estelad story. I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to cross the streams there. Um, besides which, it's not going to be the same. I, I just 
that I want that to be the Estelade story, and I want the House of Bayor to be the House of Bayor story. They're telling different stories, and they're going to be crossing. We're going to see. We're going to be able to show. Our audience is going to be able to see how they fit together, right? To see the different kinds of discontent, the different kinds of, um, um, the the different kinds of uh, of of you know issues that are arising, right? Um, uh, in the different human cultures, in the different circumstances in which they are, and see the trends and similarities, which of course Andreth in her conversations with Finrod at various points in the season is going to be crystallizing and explaining and spelling out, right? Um, but um, but anyway, that's why I I I really I don't want to uh, uh, I don't want to to really cross the streams there. Um, yeah, and that's why, really, I think the council should really be an Estelad thing. Maybe somebody from the House of Haleth comes, but I'm not even sure that that needs to be. Um, I think it really should just be that the issue of the uh, of the council is an issue of the decision about what the men of Estelad are going to do. What direction are they going to go? Um, this is the big deciding point. And as they are the majority, it's a big question, which has a big impact on the geopolitical status of things there in Beleriand. Um, so many of the neighboring elf lords care about it, as we talked about last time. Um, but it doesn't have to be the decision of for all humans. The House of Howlett, they've made their decision. They're, 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 they're done deciding. And we're not going to have them dither. We're not going to have them send a, what are they going to send a representative? And then what, go back and be like, so they said at the council, Holith, that uh, we should all leave. So we should all leave. Seriously, you're going to go tell Holith that? Right? She doesn't care. Why would she even send representatives? They can do whatever they want to do. She's doing her thing. She and her people are doing their thing. Why should they care? That's totally Holith's attitude. Right? And the House of Beor. So yeah, again, this is a, I, I think it's fine. To make it be, um, uh, a dessert. exactly. Nick says no one from the House of Holith is going to want to make the trip again, right? Exactly, right? Yeah, we didn't enjoy it so much the first time that we want to do it again. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I definitely think that we can we can keep the 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 storylines of the three peoples separate and just paralleling them with each other. Like with the the viewer will get a chance to see them all. Right. And to see these same dynamics work out in different ways in these different circumstances. But again, this to me is the point of having the three, uh, the, the good that we can draw from having these three houses that we create three very different scenarios in. But they're all confronting the same questions. They're all confronting the same issues. Um, so that's good. That's a good thing. And um, uh, and I think that that's um, uh that enables us to keep those stories clear and clean and only bring them together uh, in the, uh, uh, like Andreth and her conversations with Finrod are what enables us to bring them all together uh, for, um, uh, for comparison and for drawing larger conclusions from them as Andreth will help Finrod to draw larger conclusions from them. Um, okay, cool. Good. I uh, anyway, that's I I you know I I I need some more convincing again. I first of all, I also think there are practical problems. Um, a bunch of people seceding, 
again, I, I, I really hate the way that that makes Andreth's character weak and pointless and just trying to clean up a mess after it already happened. Uh, that seems to me a far inferior version of her character and her story. Um, so I'm strongly opposed to it from, from that reason. But in, again, it, it creates a huge problem. The elves of Nargothrond aren't going to want them to leave much more than Turgon is going to want Huor and Hurin to leave, right? Especially under the circumstances under which they are leading. Uh, this seems to me much more likely to have things come to civil war in Nargothrond, which again, Andreth is going to predict is a very real possibility down the road, but hasn't happened yet. Uh, and I don't think we want to let it get to the point of happening again, or else Andreth won't be very much good as a wise woman. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, Rihanna and I agree the the houses of men are very isolated. We can have them interact, but I think we can have them interacting I think they, they, they all sort of set their own courses, right? Um, here's my quick thought on that, Rihanna, and then we'll end. Um, I think that after the house of Hador, after Hador comes in and wins over the council at Estelad, and, the, and they move up to, Dor, to, uh, to Dorloman, and the people of Beor come out and go to Dorthonian, at that point, they reestablish links. One of the things that Andreth will do when they get to Dorthonian is say, hey, let's find out what everybody else has been up to, right? And so they'll find out what everybody else has been up to and they'll send emissaries. They'll, 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 they'll go and, hey, look, there's something for Bregolas to do if he wants. Uh, go talk to Hador up in, uh, up in, up in Dorloman and see what's going on up there. They'll send people down to Haleth, right? And import, you know, we'll get some, uh, we'll get some intermarrying that's going to happen and stuff. There, you know, once we have established the sort of steady state that they get to, right? Um, once their stories are as, as, as people stories, they're fully formed, right? Once the people of Haleth, they've done their thing and they're established in their woods. Um, once the, sorry about that. Uh, my system's having issues. Once the, uh, um, Got all kinds of things going on here. We got our, we got our budget popping up and all sorts of things. Um, anyway, <laughs> my system going a little crazy here. Um, I, anyhow, okay. So like, once once they're once the, once the Haladin are established in the woods, the people of uh, of Haleth are established in Dorloman, uh, and the people of. Um, of, of Hador are established up in Dorloman. Everything is fine. Everything's good, right? Everything is, uh, is, is in a steady state. They can now communicate. They can start intermarrying. Uh, they're all allies with the elves now, or at least minding their own business. Uh, so it's all, it's all fine. Um, anyway, that's, uh, uh, that's my thought about that, but okay. Um, I'm going to go before my system goes into entire and complete panic, uh, <laughs> which apparently it's nearing here. Uh, uh, and we're out of time anyway. So thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. As always, a lively and interesting discussion. Love the, th uh, the thinking that we're doing about this as we're moving it forward. Next time, we'll do the... Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the story of Andreth and Ignor, and I would kind of like to use that as a springboard to come back to the elves, because the next thing we need to talk about um, once we resolve the question of the romance story between Ignor and Andreth. Although the theoretical budget of our hypothetical blockbuster may be unlimited, the production budgets of this and the rest of our fun alternative educational projects are unfortunately not. 
If you have enjoyed joining our production team, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.